Hi, welcome. Today on Ask a Pastor, I'm George, joined by George Palumbo, and we are going to talk about several questions that different people have sent along to us on this podcast or different ways that you can have it distributed. Um, and if you have questions, you can send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com. We'd love to address them. So George, welcome. Good morning. George serves as one of our Life Stage pastors at our Wexford campus and uh, is engaged in many important things around Orchard Hill. So here's the first question, and this is deals with biblical accuracy. So this person asked the question, my question is maybe more of a technical question about the Bible than a, lar and a, large, than a larger principle. In Judges 16.5, it states, the ruler of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how he can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Then the question says, how does the writer of the book of Judges know that the Philistines said in a private meeting? How would the writer have obtained that information? I don't think Delilah would have voluntarily given this information up to the writer of Judges. This is like me saying, I know exactly what my enemies discuss, even though I'm nowhere near the event. To put it in a sports team's analogy, it's like the coach of Team A saying, I know exactly what Team B coach is telling them, uh, or his opponents in the locker room at halftime. I trust the Bible, but verses like this seem concocted to me. Wow. So, uh, so George. That is an exhausting, exhaustive, exhausting <laughs> exhausting, question. Exhausting, yes. <laughs> for sure. I, I would say the first thing, and I'm going to have to e even look at the question again while we, uh, that there are a couple things that stand out to me in there. And I think the first one is that uh, there's, there's a, a fallacy built into the question. You know, the, there's a negative question inside of the question that implies that, uh, that we can't know. Um, and so I, I think it, when we read the scriptures as well as any other literature, we need to be really careful uh, that we don't, we don't ask questions of the scriptures and make a negative comment and answer the question negatively before we dig into the, to the actual content. And, and I think there's an implication there that we can't know that Delilah or wouldn't know that Delilah would never have given that information up. So I, that was kind of the first thing uh, that stuck out to me. Uh, and I do think that based on the story, you know, I mean, this was a, this was a story that had a, a lot of intrigue and a lot of drama. Uh, and, and I think Delilah was probably a pretty normal human being in that when she saw the outcomes of, of what, uh, what happened as a result of the, the, conniving and drama that she, she created uh, that she very well may have repented and would perhaps been interviewed uh, you know by by someone at that time and, and perhaps had given that answer okay so so what you would say is it's possible that there's a very human explanation for that text rather than some kind of divine uh, supernatural knowledge or that it was a concocted piece of literature for the evidence of how that was written. I would say that it is possible that it was mm -hmm. something divinely, you know, uh, given to someone that, mm -hmm. you know, the writer of the, uh, of that text, uh, but that also that Delilah may have repented later mm -hmm. on and when questioned, you know, sensed, right. you know, guilt and I mean, she was a normal human being. She was a wealthy woman. 
to begin with. Uh, so, you know, eventually the money right. that was given to her would probably ran out. And, right. you know, and she did, if this was a guy that loved her, and mm -hmm. I think she did understand that he loved her deeply, right. uh, that there would be normal guilt and normal remorse. And then on the back end of such a huge uh, drama, you know, of, of the Temple of Dagon being, you know, right. pulled down. That would have been a big deal. Well, the other thing that, that at least occurs to me is that when the biblical texts are written, they're not written in real time. They're written afterward, looking back, at least the Old Testament, in these kinds of events. So in other words, somebody lived through it generally or heard it reported and then told the story. Sure. So it would be, for example, like me saying, hey, last week, George and I had this conversation and this happened. Well, what would happen is over a week's time, maybe new information would come to light through a variety of sources that would then allow me to go back and say, well, this happened, but here's what George was thinking. Yeah. Because now I know this based on uh, some other new information. And so it seems to me that it could be a very normal way to record something after the fact that happened uh, that, that they're writing as if, you know, it happened here, but they're writing after the fact. And, and I think that's uh, uh, just sometimes the most plausible, obvious answer might actually be the best answer, and that might be in this case. I would even say that I think it's easy for us to discount the value of oral transmission, right. you know, back in those days, as opposed, you know, we're, we're used to picking up our iPhone right. and, you know, this stuff's at our fingertips. Oral right. transmission was a big deal uh, yeah. before printing presses and, yeah. and that kind of thing, so. Well, and even think about, the news stories that we hear all the time. You mm. hear something about, oh, this happened, and then there's all kinds of speculation. And then sooner or later, all of a sudden out comes a piece of information that makes sense of everything, where you say, oh, this is what happened. Yes. And again, this seems like this could very easily be that kind of a situation. Yeah, and I would guess too that there were plenty of interviewers who were available to... to yeah, good. All right, so uh, you recently concluded uh, a politics class uh, with a group of people who came together just to talk about some political issues. So this is a political question. So we thought being that, you know, you just led that class that you would be the right person for this. So uh, this is, uh, what are your thoughts on David Platt's prayer for President Trump? The reaction of those from, uh, in his church and what the Christian community uh, has said after the fact and the response to all of it. So. Uh, we're going to just play David Platt's prayer. President Trump showed up at a church in Washington, D.C. It's a large church there. And the pastor invited Donald Trump on stage, prayed for him, to which people in his church, several said he shouldn't have done it, were upset with the prayer, uh, were upset with the content of the prayer, the fact that he prayed at all. And then there were others who got upset with people being upset. So, uh, so here's the prayer, and then we'll talk about it. Oh, God, we praise you as the one universal king over all. You are our leader and our Lord, and we worship you. There is one God and one Savior, and it's you, and your name is Jesus, and we exalt you, Jesus. And we know we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your wisdom in our country. And so we stand right now on behalf of our president and we pray for your grace and your mercy and your wisdom upon him. God, we pray that he would know 
how much you love him so much that you sent Jesus to die for his sins, our sins. So we pray that he would look to you, that he would trust in you, that he would lean on you, that he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice and good for righteousness and good for equity, every good path. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would give him all the grace he needs to govern in ways that we just saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that lead to peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. God, we pray for your blessing in that way upon his family. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that you would give them clarity, wisdom, wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Please, oh God, give him wisdom and help him to lead our country alongside other leaders. We pray today for leaders in Congress. We pray for leaders in courts. We pray for leaders at national and state levels. Please, oh God, help us to look to you. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to seek your wisdom and live in ways that reflect your love and your grace, your righteousness and your justice. We pray for your blessings on our president toward that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so George, um, what would you uh, kind of make of all of that, and how would you encourage you know, a Christian person to think about that? I, I, well, I mean, we know that politics are a hotly debated topic. Um, I, th I think we can take any, anything we want, and before we even talk about the prayer, but I think we can take any conversation and turn it in a direction that we would like to see it go. Uh, so we bring our preconceived notions about somebody's thoughts about how they prayed for this person or whether they should have prayed for that person. Uh, and politics and religion, you know, are the, the bane of human existence. Don't talk about those things at parties. Stay in the shallow end of the pool kind of thing. So I, I think after having heard that prayer, uh, I think it was, I'm not even a huge fan of David Platt, but when I heard the prayer and I read the prayer and I saw the controversy, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, here is a, uh, a religious leader who brought a, a political figurehead, the, the most prominent one in our country, and prayed a really well thought out, biblically based uh, prayer that included the gospel in it. Uh, I, I mean, my knee-jerk response was, this was a, I thought this was awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would you say to the people who say, President Trump has been dishonest, uh, he's been um, disingenuous, he uh, has been a player with women. Even recently, there was something that came out that, uh, if true, would certainly be discrediting. So how do you hold this person up and, and um, in any way give honor or deference to this person? I mean, that seemed to be a lot of the, the pushback. It wasn't really so much that, oh, this prayer was awful. It was just the fact that he would even even acknowledge President Trump's presence and pray for him? I, my short answer would be all the more reason to pray for him. Uh, here's mm -hmm. a, a man who is in a, a position to lead our country for good or for bad. 
and if he is guilty of all of those things, mm-hmm. or even none of them, he is just like the rest of us. He's a sinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to put him on a platform uh, where it didn't seem to me that David Platt in any way, shape, or form was uh, praying that he'll win the next election mm-hmm. uh, or that <clears throat> the people in his family would get more money and they would become wealthier or more prominent or uh, their book sales would go up or anything like that. He simply is praying for him as a leader. And if I'm not mistaken, inside the prayer, uh, David Platt does mention not only Donald Trump, but any leader, any political mm-hmm. leader uh, who is in a place yeah. that uh, has authority. Yeah, it's actually a biblical idea to pray for people in power. And yes. that includes political people. And presumably that doesn't just mean private prayer, but from time to time, a public prayer offered in churches for people in power. And I've always believed that that means both people that you respect and like their positions and people you don't respect and don't like their positions. Meaning if you lean to the right and there's a Democrat in power who you don't care for or care for their views, you should probably pray for them. And if you lean left and there's a Republican in power that you don't care for their views or them personally, you should probably pray for them as well as people that you agree with. And, and I think the, the, the challenge has become that, that some people can't see that, that there can be disagreement among Christians any longer about political views or candidates and have tend to see things as monolithic. I mean, I've heard people say things along the lines of if you support this candidate, then that means that you don't understand or believe in the God of the Bible or those kinds of statements. And while there are certainly certain single issues that can be flashpoint issues that that call into question the wisdom of supporting a candidate, uh, it seems like that that um, polarization of takes creates a situation where people can be upset about a generic and generic isn't the right word, but a a nonpartisan Mm. prayer for a political leader. And, and when I use the word generic, I was thinking nonpartisan. It was not a generic prayer, but it was sure. a nonpartisan prayer. But for some people, that's akin to support, therefore offensive. Yeah, I think them just seeing him up there was just too mm-hmm. much you know, for them to see, like you said earlier, that they had struggled. I, I know that uh, I did a little reading this week, and even the Book of Common Prayer mm-hmm. uh, you know, has prayers that are in there that are for people yeah. in authority, that we pray for our governors and our, our Congress people, our senators, uh, because it's right to lift them up right. before the Lord, uh, that the Lord would put his hand upon them and mark their way out. So I mentioned that you've just completed this politics class uh, this summer. What's, what's been your biggest takeaway from just hearing people discuss political issues in the context of of a a Christian faith? Uh, That, of course, there's division even amongst believers. Uh, You and I have even had the conversation that uh, we need to be careful, I think, when when we talk about political issues because we are all on a continuum of growth, Uh, spiritual growth, intellectual growth. Uh, We should be open when new information comes in uh, for good or for bad, you know, that we ought to be honest and take an, a hard, honest look at how we arrive at truth. Uh, yeah. So those are stumbling blocks for people, but all in all, people have been pretty gracious and, yeah. uh, and pretty humble. That's, that's good to see, especially in the church context, because those are such important issues. You know, it seems like there's two uh, opposite mistakes that churches make on this, in my estimation. One is they become so political 
that if you walk through the doors of the church, you're hit with political issues, even if the take of the church is right, that, that the message of the church is, we're this, we're that, mm. you should be this or that, rather than the gospel. Yes. Um, and the gospel is the primary calling of the church. The other is to so put all those issues to the background uh, because they want to be faithful to the gospel or just don't want to be controversial, one or the other, that, that they're afraid to speak to the current issues and bring a biblical worldview to bear on current issues, which can also be a, a mistake because um, as a church, you want to hold the gospel first and foremost, not let it be um, you know, something that's, that's dwarfed behind a, a message of an agenda for a single issue, but at the same time, not surrender all ground to speaking to current issues. And the way at least we've tried to do that here is to say, we want to speak to issues, but we don't want to do it in sound bites. And what we yes. mean by that is, is we're not going to simply have somebody walk through the doors and just hear, oh, well, this church is here and everyone should be here. But if we engage the issue, we want to engage it with a robust enough conversation that, that then somebody can say, well, I may not agree with you, but at least I heard a well thought out um, reasoned position rather than just a soundbite about the issue. And, and that's a challenge sometimes, but, but that seems to have worked overall for us at Orchard Hill. And I think the most important thing you said in there is that we bring the gospel to those current event issues, mm -hmm. that we must see them. And people bring in their viewpoints in. The worldview comes into the church, uh, and we must see those things within right. the light of the gospel. We have to face them. Right. Well, and if you don't ever talk about those issues, you'll have a generation of people who will grow up that you've had no... Um, no way of influencing their thinking. And then you'll wonder why on some issues they won't hold biblical positions. Um, and that's a, a failure yes. as a local church to not speak to current issues um, and, and at least some format. Um, all right, here's a, a question, George. What happens after death? I'm wondering what does the Bible teach about what happens to believers at the moment they pass away? I've always thought that believers are immediately brought into the presence of Jesus. And I find that very comforting. However, I'm wondering if this is what the Bible actually teaches. I've heard some believers say that we will go into some sort of state of rest. What does the Bible actually teach about this? Well, I thought, last night I thought to myself, maybe we should go to the cemetery and do some interviews. Yeah. Huh? And find out from people. Unfortunately, we're not going to get any answers from them. <laughs> so, uh, and I mean, that's one of the hardest issues to, because there's this veil of unknown. The, the death to us is the absolute unknown to us that you know it's the one veil we are not able to cross and do an investigation there and come back and and let everybody know uh, but as far as a scriptural answer is concerned I th the apostle paul is very clear you know that his belief is that when he is absent from the body he will be present with the lord i think that was a reigning theme uh, throughout the entire New Testament, Philippians and uh, Thessalonians, you know, we read about, you know, this is a good scenario. We are, when we are born again and we are uh, brought into the kingdom of light, something good happens inside of us. Uh, but we're waiting for something better. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're waiting for something better. Uh, but our ultimate uh, is the best that we're waiting for is are becoming like Christ and him being the first fruits of that in that we will live again in resurrection bodies. All right, so if I'm hearing you, what you're saying is, is you don't know in a sense because we don't know anybody who's 
died and come back to life, other than Jesus. Yes. Um, who obviously were taking. He didn't his, report for the his, interview today that, either. That's right. But uh, but he, there are some testimonies yes. in Scripture yes. to that, and and your understanding then, based on Paul and some other text, would be that that you don't have some kind of soul rest, but that you're immediately in the presence of God. Well, the you know. Is that traditionally? Yeah, there's the there's the soul sleep. The mm-hmm. was it psychopanikia, mm-hmm. or you know that's a was always branded as a heresy that you know we go into some sort of a soul sleep uh, for you know until mm-hmm. the the great resurrection comes to pass. Uh, but that's always been put down uh, in orthodox circles mm-hmm. as a heresy that we when we do die we are immediately brought in to the presence of the Lord. So obviously this didn't address this directly. So so what does that say to the doctrine of purgatory that some churches teach, which is the idea you go into a holding pattern, um, basically. Uh, well, some things are resolved <laughs> that either let you pass into eternity with Christ, heaven, uh, or not, which sometimes is also used for you know, relatives giving money to help you move along faster. Um, you know, where does that idea come from biblically? Does it have any ground at all? Yeah, I don't think it has any ground biblically, you know, that, that we go to some place of, uh, uh, that we spend some period of time, you know, the Catholic Church has, you know, put that forth for forever. And uh, the idea of us being purged, though, is going to happen in a moment. Uh, there is, we are going to go through when we pass through the veil of death, you know, we are going to need to be purged. We're imperfect, uh, Mm -hmm. in our, in our, again, we're, we're living in a state of goodness where we're redeemed, uh, but we have not been perfected. Mm -hmm. And in that moment of, you know, if that's what they want to call purgatory, that it happens immediately in a moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to be purged uh, of our sin nature, uh, before we're ushered into the presence of Christ. Uh, I had a, a seminary professor who, who always said, I have no problem with the idea of purgatory if their sense of purgatory is that it happens in a moment and they're ushered right. into uh, the glory of Christ because we will be purged mm-hmm. uh, of our sin nature. Mm-hmm. So I always thought that was interesting, but yeah. the idea of uh, this penitence time where we need to be prayed for and our, yeah, that just finds its roots in. Right. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that statement I have no problem with purgatory if it's instantaneous is yes. almost a way um, of manipulating, tr- trying yes. to say, go ahead, believe that. But yeah, yes. whereas the idea itself is not found, I don't believe. I would say it's anti-biblical. It, it seems even. very clear that, that there's an immediate sense of judgment. Now, now what this question uh, might be hinting at is, is a lot of times there's a belief that immediately you are in your eternal state. And again, if you take the whole teaching of the scriptures, there is a sense in which the eternal state is yet future. Now, that doesn't mean you're not caught up in with God immediately or, or in, in a, a, a state that is, but, but with the idea of coming back and re-inhabiting the earth and some of those things, uh, your final eternal state is yet future after you die. Uh, and so that's maybe part of the idea. But, but again, there's enough things that say you'll be with me today in paradise. Paul, to be you know, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Yes. Those kinds of things. Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed for a person who wants to die after this comes yes. judgment. All of those things indicate that there's an immediacy to it, even though there's a future sense of the eternal state. So. Well, and we even have the, uh, the, the, the witness of Christ that you know, he died. 
and he left that body. I mean, it spent mm -hmm. three days in a tomb where he went yeah. and then came back and he is the first fruits of that glorification that we'll have that we'll get to enjoy uh, glory in a body forever, eternally. Yeah. Yeah, that's encouraging. Well, good. Thank you, George, for your time today. Thank you for spending part of your day uh, at this uh, with us here today. And uh, we want to just encourage you, if you have questions, to send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com.